Maverick says, love the videos for good info and keeping up with the industry. Thank you, Maverick. What are your thoughts on electric outboards like the Vision Marine and Elko? Well, I mean, I don't really see electric outboards as being a problem. I think that they're going to be a big part of the future. Obviously, there are some kinks that need to be worked out of the whole system with the range, the batteries, the price, all that kind of stuff. But they're going to be more and more prominent. Uh, Elko and Vision Marine are probably the most prominent right now. Vision Marine definitely is one of the most popular and the most abundant outboard out there as far as an electric outboard. I think that they have the capacity to make like 10,000 engines a year now or something like that. I know that they bought some company that allowed them to produce a massive amount, or maybe it was 10,000 battery cells. They bought a battery company or a manufacturing company or a plant or something like that and allowed them to make 10,000 batteries a year. I think that's what it is, 10,000 cells. But definitely one of the most popular, one of the most... Um, Known, they made that catamaran, the speedboat that went that broke a hundred. Uh, I forget what the actual speed was, I know it broke a hundred with twins on it. And then Elko, Elko, I don't know that much about. Elko is definitely, I think they only make like a 50 horse, they don't go above a 50 horse, but they're still a very prominent brand. I don't have I've not heard anything bad about them. I think there is going to be a massive future. For electric outboards, I know that like you've got Evoy that makes a 300 and I want to say a 150. And so you've got basically two big brands that make a larger horsepower outboard being a 300, which is the Evo, Evo and the Photon P300. So the Evo is basically a Verado cowling and lower unit with a electric engine inside of it that makes 300 horsepower and then the photon i want to say is made out of an e-tech shell not 100 percent on that one i know they make like a 120 and a 150 as well then it all kind of comes back down to the price and the battery systems we just got done talking a lot about lithium and the power the complications stuff like that if you are in the boaters program, we do a weekly live stream, and we were just talking about this the other day. Um, you could either become a program member or um, a channel member, and we do a weekly live stream. But we are actually talking about the Volvo Penta. So just kind of like a, a recap of what we talked about. There is a thing called the CES. So every year in the beginning of the year, there's a consumer electronics show. And in 2023, Volvo Penta came out with this huge future of boating vision. This whole thing about having this island and charging centers and a membership program where you could become a member, get on a boat, like rent it, I guess, kind of like Freedom Boat Club, and then take the boat out. The boat is autonomous. It teaches you how to drive it. It docks itself. They have charging pods that come out to the boat and charge it while you're at the sandbar or whatever overnight. Like this whole big thing, which was pretty cool because it kind of like gives you an idea of where they want to go. I know that we've heard that before. I talked with someone at a at Flibs one year, not sure the year, maybe 2020, 2021, uh, when I talked to him. And Volvo Penta took this like change and that they see basically electric being the future. I mean, they kind of don't really 
put much outside of doing diesel, inboards, hybrids, and electric. And I think that they're going to do the hybrids to take over the diesel. Most of their boat, like, well, not most of their boats, but a lot of their engines that they're putting out are these hybrid systems and these electric style type of engines that they are trying to get to. And I think that they want to make their main line that. And that is why in 2021, uh, I think it was 2021. So they bought seven Marine outboards and then it wasn't but a year or two after they bought it that they completely killed it. So, you know, they, they put all this money into this brand to acquire this company and then they just completely shut it down. And the reason they shut it down was because they see the future being this. They want to push more towards this electrification of boats, I guess you would call it, even though they're still, you know, heavily invested into hybrids and um, stuff like that, that will run off of other fuel systems outside of, you know, gasoline and diesel. So where do I see, you know, outboards going as far as electric? I think you're going to see a lot more of them. I think the technology is going to get a lot better. Obviously, there's some problems with the lithium. We just did a video on the main channel about lithium. And um, a lot of people still don't really see lithium for what it really can be all the benefits that it does have yes there's obviously some issues with it like what we just saw uh earlier a few weeks ago by the time this video comes out there was a massive cold snap in the north of the united states and there were all these people that had teslas and electric cars that were all stranded because of how cold it got they were basically dead in the water the cars would not run the batteries would not charge nothing would work at the same time i want to say that you know you can't really say all that much about that because when it gets to negative 50 negative 60 like these massively low temperatures lead acid has its problems anyway like any battery is going to have a problem whenever you get that cold so you know, I mean, I guess it's a talking point, not necessarily something that I would say is a problem because especially when you're talking about boating and boating, you're not boating in negative 40 degrees. If you are, that's a choice. So I don't know, you know, if that would really relate, but, but that is kind of where you see some of the problems. And then obviously talking about, you know, the explosive factors of it, even though lithium phosphate, um, doesn't have the same problems as a nickel mag manganese cobalt. So NMCs, NMCs, if they are damaged, those are the ones that will explode. But the problem is that LFP, lithium iron phosphate, which is the main type of battery in the boating world because they don't have thermal runaway as easy when they're damaged. So you could, you know, stab the battery and I want to say 99 times out of 100, it's not going to catch on fire. Even though there are some experiences, again, depending on the BMS and the you know quality of the battery, obviously when you make something super cheap and you just pack it together and people are trying to make money, um, they can cheap out on certain steps and make things dangerous that they shouldn't be. But you know th that's a whole nother topic all in of its own. When you're talking about LFP, a good brand and a good product, it doesn't have that issue but you don't have the capacity and the range that you get with the nickel manganese cobalt. NMC, they are more dangerous, but you get more range and you get more 
um, capacity out of the battery than you do with the LFP. There are, you know, obviously new technologies coming out all the time, and they will eventually figure something out to make it, you know, the ultimate product, like solid state. So opposed to using certain types of electrolytes, they use a solid state inside the battery, and that shows a lot of promises. Obviously, I think I think the main problem with the solid state is that the cycle count is lower. So how many times you can drain the battery and recharge it, the cycle life is a lot lower than um, you know, an electrolyte substance and then the graphite, they're using graphite and then sodium. So sodium is a salt and opposed to using lithium, they'll use sodium and solid state and graphite and all these other, you know, they're making different chemical compounds to get the best out of each different one to make it cheaper, last longer and have more range. So if you've got batteries that will last you 15, 20 years that don't explode and have less weight than carrying 600 gallons of fuel, then, you know, the benefits are there. Obviously charging them, you know, that could be its own problem, its own discussion of, you know, if you burn 600 gallons of fuel on your trips or wherever you're going, how much electricity are you going to use whenever you charge your boat? So does your electric bill go up a thousand bucks a month to keep your boat charged or, you know, that whole mathematic side of things. I don't really know. You'd have to kind of figure that out. We'll figure that out as time goes on. But as far as like them being safe and being useful and being like the future of boating, I definitely see the potential and I'm all about it. I think, you know, the batteries again, if they can figure out sodium because they're so much more abundant than lithium, that'll be great. If they figure out the solid state to make them have the cycle life. So, you know, if you can get 20,000 cycles out of a battery, that battery is going to outlast the boat. And if you can get, um, you know, the graphite and all these other things to get different ranges. So where you can have a boat that can do 600 miles or whatever it may be, to be equivalent to using, you know, fuel, then 100%, there's no disadvantage there. Because if it doesn't explode when you damage it, then uh, the safety's there. And if you can get the range, then great. That's kind of the biggest problem that I think people are seeing with electric on cars. But obviously, when they figure it out with a car, they're going to figure it out with a boat too. So, it's just a matter of time and when they figure that out. If you get, like, let's say you get into an electric car, it says that you have 400 miles until you're empty. That's all fine and dandy when you're doing 65, 70 miles an hour. But that's not really the true range because you get in this car and you're doing 90, 95, 100. You're not going to get 400 miles range out of it. You're going to get, you know, 250 or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. I don't know the exact number. That's an exaggeration, but you get the point. The point is that you think you have this distance, but depending on how much you're using it. In boats, we're going you know, wide open throttle as much as possible. We're using a lot of capacity, a lot of power really quickly. So where does that really put it at? I'm not you know, sure, but I think it's interesting and I love to see it. We're going to see a lot more of it, I think. And I think that the reliability might be there. Um, I would be, I haven't really looked into the weight factors of everything. So I never really put together like, so we've got this 300 horsepower Evo. I don't know how much that weighs compared to a 300 horsepower V8 engine. So, you know, that might play into an, uh, to effect on 
the size of it, the weight, I I gotta imagine it's definitely lighter, but I'm not a hundred percent. So if you've got the same distances of the boat with the amount of batteries that you need and the weight of the engine, how much different is that compared to a completely full fuel tank and the weight of the combustion engine? That's kind of my thoughts. And again, I, I don't really see them being a problem. I think there is going to be a big future in there. And I think that the power is going to be really interesting because electric power is so much more instantaneous than gasoline, I think it's going to be pretty cool, honestly. So like, you know, you get an electric car when you hit the pedal, like it's instant power. It, you know, off the line, the zero to 60, the zero to 90, all of those records, the zero to 200 and back to zero, every record for acceleration is basically, you know, owned by an electric vehicle. I think the, the Bugatti BM, Bugatti Volkswagen, maybe it is. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what car it is, but there is a car that, you know, the 0 to 60, the 0 to 90, 0 to 100, all those numbers, I mean, it smokes everything on how instantaneous and how quick it is. So I think that is a definitely cool aspect to electric that, you know, relating to boats, especially people like bass fishermen and stuff like that that want all this power, all this speed really quick. If they can pop their boats up on plane and be like gone in a second, you know, if you can go from 0 to 30 miles an hour on on plane in a boat in say three seconds four seconds that's going to be insane so definitely cool um, i can't wait to see more of where it goes and what what happens james richard what is your opinion on using lithium starting batteries with yamaha outboards um, so another question about lithium we we're just talking about it and yamaha so it's going to depend on the battery and your your engine your situation so yamaha does not warranty like they do not want you using lithium with their outboards as of now i'm sure that's going to change everything's going up the biggest problem that they have like yamaha and most brands have is that cheaper starting lithium batteries will have an issue with disconnecting and also an issue with charging so Based on the BMS, if you got a cheap lithium battery with a cheap BMS, it will actually disconnect itself from the engine. And when you're running an engine and it disconnects, all kinds of problems could happen. I mean, it's a, you're talking about a computer on, on an engine, and you're just taking away the power like that. You can fry the computer. You can do damage to other electrical components that are on it with a voltage spike. So, like, when you cut the power you can have a, a voltage spike. That's why everybody has, you know, surge protectors and battery backups and stuff like that, like on your TVs, your computers, and all that kind of stuff. You use a surge protector because if, you know, you have a lightning strike that knocks out the power, there can be a surge of voltage or a voltage spike that can fry electrical components. So if your battery is being disconnected from the engine because a BMS is just straight up shutting it off, I mean, that's a big problem. And you can damage parts on the engine. Yamaha does not recommend that. There's no warranty. If you got warranty on the engine, obviously, you know, people can say a lot about warranty. I think that Yamaha, Suzuki, I don't know much about Honda's warranty stuff, but Mercury, like, 
Most of those brands, the warranty, there's a misconception of like, if you do this thing that you're going to lose your warranty. Warranty doesn't really work like that. Warranty is basically for, you know, a manufacturer defect. So if there's something wrong with your engine and it's because of the manufacturer, then they will cover that. It's not a, you know, warranty is not insurance. Definitely, you know, on one side of things, because people treat warranty like insurance, like, oh, I got warranty. So it doesn't matter what I do. I can abuse the engine. I can have all these problems. I can rough it up and I'll get a brand new one because it's warranty. That's not how warranty works. So if you are running a lithium battery on the engine and you have a lower unit failure, nine times out of 10, Yamaha is not going to deny your warranty on your engine because you had a lithium battery and your lower unit failed. They're irrelated. Now, depending on the dealership and who's looking at the engine, who's looking at the boat and stuff like that, you know, you could have some stickler that's all about the, the rules and the lines and be like, oh, you know, this is a problem. You know, that's a whole nother case. But by and large, most dealerships and most Yamaha, you know, people and other brands, like it's about the consumer. It's about the, the product. Like they make a super reliable product and they want people to go out and enjoy it. You want to go down the water. You want to go catch fish. You want to go run your boat. Like, and they want you to do that because that keeps you in boating. You're going to buy more engines. You're going to, you know, buy more stuff for boats. Like it keeps the industry going. So to like inherently or like, you know, what would be the word? So to like conscientiously try and deny warranty because of, you know, some miscule thing like, you know, this, so you're running a lithium battery and you have a lower unit problem to deny a warranty claim because of that. It's, it's highly unlikely. Someone has to physically decide to do that. And that person is really the problem, not Yamaha. Yamaha is not looking at stuff like that. Now, if you've got a stator problem, a computer problem, and you're using a lithium, yeah, they're going to deny the warranty claim because they're directly related. You know what I'm saying? You've got a lithium battery that's super cheap that cut the power off and fried the ECU of the computer. That's not a manufacturer defect. That's not Yamaha's problem. They're not going to cover that back to the lower unit or whatever else, you know, the case may be like whatever, a flywheel problem or a trim unit problem or something like that. Like if your trim unit fails because of, you know, a a manufacturer defect, most of the time, Yamaha is just going to change it out and they're going to fix the problem and that's that's it. They're never going to go anything above that because there's no point in doing that. It, there was a problem with the trim unit and we fixed it. That's it. They're not going to deny your warranty. But if it is a directly related with the lithium battery, they will. So that's kind of my two cents on that side of things. But using them as starting batteries, if you're using a high quality battery like um, you know, an Epic battery and a BIS battery. Um, I don't know if stealth makes one, but like these, these expensive, but super high quality batteries with the BMS that's set up to be able to use as a starting battery. You're not going to have any problems because the BMS is set up to make sure that you don't have a problem. It's not going to disconnect from the engine. It's not going to um, reject the charge current and burn up the stator or the alternator or have a problem on that side of stuff. So I think that there's definitely the value there, especially when you look at the longevity. So your lead acid batteries, you know, you've got two to five years. Sometimes you can get a little bit more based on how you use it and where you're at. 
But a lithium battery, you can get 10, 15, 20 years out of this battery. So if you can get 20 years out of something opposed to getting five years. So if you spend $400 on a battery over, you know, buying five batteries over a 20 year period, you're going to spend the same amount as with you if you bought a $1,200 battery and it lasts you 15, 20 years. So the cost and, and the having to deal with it, I think the advantage is definitely on lithium there. But at the same time, um, you know, it depends on the battery and the quality and whether or not it's a good quality battery. Because if it's not a quality battery, then you could have problems. So definitely don't go with a cheap battery. I think, you know, lithium starting batteries will eventually be a huge part of the industry. Like Mercury already has all the specifications. They use lithium a lot and a lot of brands are pushing to lithium. So if if the industry is moving towards this thing, then you can probably guarantee that all the other brands are going to have to move into, you know, this this deal being lithium whatever it may be. It, it might end up being sodium or any of these other things that we talked about. Then Steve Myers wants to know, so if you put them on a 100-foot yacht, say 10000 each times two, 20000 one round trip from Seattle to Cabo and back up at a 20% fuel savings, wouldn't take long to cover the cost and start saving you large amounts of money on fuel. I would cage the props to save them from potential damage. Talking about Shero props again, and you know the fuel economy, depending on the size of the prop, you might have a $10,000, $15,000 prop, but it's going to go back to how you're using it. Like he's saying, a 100-foot yacht, and going down to Cabo, if you're burning a lot of fuel and you're running long cruises and you're saving 20, 30, 40%, you're definitely going to have a fuel savings there. And, and it's all about the math. So if you spend, let's say you spend $1,000. No, let's make it easy. Let's say you spend $4,000 a month on fuel. And again, that's not most of us. These are people that are have cruisers and do a lot of fishing, a lot of offshore long trips, or a lot of short trips. So the, if you're spending $4,000 a month on fuel, and you're looking at getting a 20, 30, 40% fuel efficiency, which is what people are generally seeing, let's go with 20%. If you get 20% better fuel economy, that means you're going to spend only $3,000 a month on fuel. So you've saved $1,000 that month. If it costs you $20,000 to get these propellers, it's going to take you 20 months to get your money back and start saving money. So if you double that and you spending, say, $8,000 a month, on fuel and at 20%, you're going to save $2,000. It's only going to take you 10 months to be able to get your money back. Or if you're spending $12,000 a month on fuel at 20%, it's only going to take you five months to get your money back. So again, it's going to be a math game, how you use your boat and cruising. Some of these companies, you know, like let's say you own a yacht and you charter that yacht out or you run fishing trips and you're burning that much fuel a month because you're running 60 miles offshore and back every day or every other day or something like that, then within a few months, you might be able to get your money back out of buying the prop. Now, if you're running in shallow water, you're running in rivers and stuff like that where you have a chance of hitting ground, then 
No, nah, probably not. I mean, you're you're not spending that much in fuel to what you're going to have to spend to buy the prop. And by the time you get your money back, you know, you might have already be on to the next thing. And then also you have a risk of hitting ground. So if you roll, roll one of the um, blades over, it's not really a blade, it's like a ribbon, but... If you, you know, mess that up, then, you know, that's a whole nother problem. But if you're offshore, you're cruising, you're not going to have a chance of hitting ground and you're running all those trips, then 100%, the savings could be there. Totally get, I'm with you there, Steve. It's a math game. Bob White, have you looked at the cost of a new 150 or above? I can build and rebuild five two-strokes for the price of one four-stroke. I don't blow motors every day like you may be thinking. If I get two years out of an HPDI, then drop two grand on it, I have barely paid over the sales tax of a new one. Do the math. New ain't cost-effective for a blue-collar dude. I mean, new outboards are definitely a rich man's game. That's kind of what we're talking about here is the price of everything. And... Yeah, if you can rebuild five two-strokes and get 10 years out of those engines, then definitely worth it. And I'm not against the two-strokes either. I'm still a big fan of an HPDI. I would still run an Optimax. Like, you know, there there's nothing wrong with the two-stroke. I'm, I'm all for you there. It's an interesting idea. There's a lot of people out there at the same time that don't buy engines, don't rebuild them, aren't mechanically inclined. They just want to go fishing. So, you know, for those guys, it might not be the same type of a situation where they have the ability to rebuild them and they, you know, they might have the money to go buy it. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm with you though. I, I get what you're saying. I'm a doofus. I have a question. Just purchased a 2024 Suzuki 175. Tides really affect my ramp depth. Sometimes have to really tilt the motor up so keel isn't scraping bottom. Is it bad for the motor to run it at an angle like that for 10 to 15, 10 to 15 minutes? Um, I'm guessing you're saying that keeping your skeg, not the keel. So the keel is, you know, here's your boat, the very bottom, you know, where the two sides of the hole meet, that's the keel. I think you're talking about the skeg of the engine and having to trim it up. So depending on the angle of the engine and the water is going to be the problem here. So with an outboard, you're talking about the exhaust and you're running cooling water. There's water going into the exhaust and then pushing it out. So most exhausts come to the top and then they they come over and the exhaust comes out of the cylinders and it goes up and then down and out. So if you trim the engine, like let's say, you know, this is the water and this is your engine and you trim it up like this, as long as that exhaust is above and, you know, the water line and it's not, you know, tilted to an angle. So if you tilt the engine like, like this, water is going to just roll back into the engine and lock up your engine because it's going to be able to do that. By and large, with the engine tilted, you know, there is... To a point, I'm trying to think of the exhaust system on that Suzuki and how far. I mean, you probably can tilt it to like this and not have a problem because the water is just going to be in the exhaust and gravity is going to do its job. It's going to be pushing it down. You've also got the air that is coming out. The exhaust is being pushed out of the engine and it's going to push all the water down. Water is not going to have a chance to get back up into the power head and mess things up. That's kind of what the problem with tilting the engine up as long as there's no chance of water getting into the engine through the exhaust, then 
it doesn't matter as long as you got cooling water because at a certain point you're going to trim the engine up out of the water and you're not going to be sucking in cooling water. So I'd be looking at that before you're able to trim the engine up so far to where you're going to get water that, you know, goes back into the engine and locks your engine up. Those are going to be the kind of the two things that I'm thinking about and that what you're going to want to be concerned about. I don't think you're going to have a problem as long as, you know, you trim it up to where you're still getting cooling water in there. But, you know, I get what you're saying with the steep ramp and you, you know, the end, you've got to bring your boat up on the trailer, trailers like this. And, you know, you're, as you come up, you don't want to submerge your engine at the same time. So steep ramps can have their downfalls, but as long as you've still got cooling water, the lower unit's still in the water, I think you're going to be all right. You can run it like that, you know, for as long as you want because you're cooling the engine and it's not tilted all the way up to where water can get through the exhaust back into the engine. Most engines have been designed to where that's no longer an issue. There were older engines like, you know, the, the first generation Verado, stuff like that, that had the exhaust so low that that was a potential problem, but... By and large, most of them, the exhaust comes up to the top and then back down and all the water is being dumped out and there isn't really a way for that to happen. Again, be very cautious. You might even take the cowling off the engine, look at the exhaust and tilt it up to where you're you know, trying to tilt it up and see if that's going to be a problem. But I think by the time that becomes a problem, that... Um, you're going to have the lower unit out of the out of the water and not be even sucking cooling water. So don't go that far with it. If you have to go that far with it, sh you know, just shut the engine off and get the strap onto the boat to where you can, you know, pull, just crank the the boat up onto the trailer. Get guide posts on your trailer so that way the guide posts as long as you get the bow in between the guide posts, you can, you know, hand the strap over and hook it from the bow and be able to crank it up onto the trailer and not worry about, you know, just shut the engine off and not worry about that. So that's kind of the way I would do it, especially if your ramp is super steep, the trailer is going to be super submerged. So you should be able to get the bow up real close to the front and then just kind of work with somebody as you pull it out to get it, you know, to sit right on the trailer. Ray, Ray Zar, you meant, you mentioned about spraying the engine with CRC. I prefer WD-40. As I've been told, CRC over time can make the cable insulation mushy. Um, I have not heard that about CRC. I don't, I don't know. It could. I mean, you start spraying chemicals on stuff, there definitely could be an effect on rubber components and stuff like that. Even though I have not seen that, I can't say that that couldn't possibly happen. I mean, I guess maybe you need 20 years of CRCs to get, you know, evidence of that. But uh, same thing with WD-40. I'm not against the WD-40. I have been told by someone else that WD-40, because it is a petroleum product, that it will um, dry out and crack the insulation that's on the wires, like the engine harness and stuff like that. Again, I haven't personally seen this happen, even though it is potential. So, you know, weighing the options there. We use CRC, so I'm not going to say not to use CRC. WD-40 is still a great product as well. I do see the, the correlation between the petroleum, the drying out, and the cracking of the 
um, insulation, the rubber insulation on the wiring harness. So if you want to be 100% with it, just go buy Yamashield. Yamashield is, you know, outstanding. And it's like 10, 12 bucks for a bottle. And that will give you all the corrosion protection that you need. So maybe even just switching over from WD and CRC to Yamashield, that might be the best 100% way to not have an issue. So let's do one more before we shut it down for the day. I was, Scott Michael said, I was just looking at these for my four 425s. The cost is 24000 and I don't know if I can justify the cost. Right now, I go four-tenths of a mile per gallon at 4,000 RPM and hold 614 gallons that I fill up one to two times a month. Talking about the Shero props again, so yeah, we can end it on this one. Again, you know, it's a math thing. I did a little bit of an equation here just so we can do it. I can't get the equation right off the top of my head. But if you have 614 gallons twice a month, that's 1,228 gallons. Usually I think people like, you know, you get 20 to 30% on the fuel savings of it. So at 1,228, if you're going to be spending somewhere around nine to $1,000 per month on the fuel. So it's going to take you like two to two and a half years to get your money back. So is that savings enough, you know, to unload $24,000 to, you know, over two years? Generally, my guess is if you're running four, 425s and you got 614 gallons spending thousand bucks on a fill up, you could probably find a better way to take $24,000 so, like, I'll put it like this. If you take $24,000 and you invest it into something else, my guess is you'll probably be able to double your money in two to two and a half years opposed to spending $24,000 on propellers and then waiting two and a half years to try and get the fuel savings out of those propellers. That's just kind of my thought on that based on, you know, if, you, if you're running four 425s, then... My guess is you've got opportunities to use that money elsewhere, double it, and you know, then there's no point in buying the propellers because you can make your money elsewhere and not worry about the fuel savings. If you want to talk about something, drop in the comments below. Email us at askbab at bornagainbuddy.com. Check out our boaters program. Again, we do a weekly live stream. We got podcasts, hundreds of courses, or you can become a channel member on the main channel, and we will talk to you next week.